from the Auto Line Studios. Here is your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you for joining us on AutoLine this week, where we're going to be talking about the U.S. economy, car sales, and car dealerships. And that's because my special guest for the day is Stephen Zackley, the chief economist with the National Auto Dealers Association. Great to have you on AutoLine. Thank you for having me. Also joining us today are Steve Finley with Ward's Dealer Business and John Stoll with the Wall Street Journal. Great having the two of you as thank well. You. Well, Stephen, let's jump right into it. Car sales started out slow this year in the U.S. We got hammered by a brutally cold winter. When you go through the first six months, we're at about a 16.9 million rate. You know, I'm just taking the first half of the years and multiplying it by two, and it looks like we're at 16.9. How do you think the year is going to end up? Are we going to see a stronger second half? Uh, definitely, we're going to see a stronger second half. I think we've seen the economy steadily build. We've seen consumers continue to come into this market, and I think the second half of this year is going to be fantastic. And we raised our forecast to 17.2 million, so... Again, a very good year. Now, when you say 17.2, does that include medium and heavy-duty trucks, or is it just light it vehicles? It does not. It, that's just light vehicles. So you'd add basically another 400,000 if you were going to do medium and heavy-duty. So that's a pretty good year. It's a great year. And you've added 300,000 to your original forecast, We right? have, yes. We originally said 16.9, and so now we're up to 17.2. And this is, again, based on the second half of this year, expected to be much stronger. Now, had you lowered your forecast when the year started out as slow as it did? No. Now, we had said 16.9. 16.94 since basically November of last year. But uh, again, I, I think we looked at the consumer situation, certainly the low gas prices that have stayed. We're looking at the finance situation. Again, Fed hasn't raised rates, so we've got a very good finance market. And all that adds up to a, a great second half. The expectation, uh, you mentioned gas prices. I've heard you know several people say, Alex Partners, for instance, saying that that is delayed when they think there might be a downturn. Uh, you, what do you see 2016? In terms of this momentum, does it continue? Do we see even a bigger market in 2016? I think we will see a bigger market in 2016. Uh, I'm more concerned about how well this industry is going to do in terms of pricing uh, and in terms of just maintaining sort of capacity discipline um, that this industry always has an issue with as we start to get better and better. Uh, we tend to see a lot of new plants come online and we tend to see a lot of new product come out. Um, and then, of course, is always difficult for the industry to deal with. Um, but I think in terms of gasoline prices, there are too many issues. We've got a very likely peace treaty coming through, or at least a, a resolution to the Iranian nuclear issue. That's going to bring a lot of supply online. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no end to the U.S. supply either, which can kick in and, and turn right back on, uh, basically, if, if prices start to rise back above $100 a barrel. Now, you mentioned capacity. I was talking to an analyst today, in fact, who said that the automakers are tired of cutting uh, production. Uh, so what they want to do is add more incentives as the year progresses. Do you see that as happening? More money on the hood, better financing um, propositions? So I think what we're going to see is we're going to certainly see targeted segment financing and targeted segment incentives. Uh, we've seen the small car segment, the mid-sized car segment, and of course the luxury, even the luxury car segment. All cars. That had struggled, <laughs> right? I mean, people are looking at cross utilities, they're looking at sport utilities, pickup trucks. Those segments are going to see higher incentives and I think better financing rates. Uh, again, if you look at the overall market, though, I think we're going to be relatively flat because I think you'll see a pullback in pickups and you'll continue to see very low incentives on cross utilities and sport utilities. 
But what has it got you worried about the industry maintaining this discipline? Can you give us some examples of what you see that yeah. you go, oh, I don't want to see them do more of that? Yeah, I see a lot of forecasts come out. Um, some of these guys on Wall Street are talking about 20 million units. A lot of the car companies are starting to talk 18, 19, 20 million. Uh, we forget that there's still a global economy that's struggling. We've got a China that's slowing. We have Europe that really has never truly recovered from that financial crisis and that recession in terms of vehicle sales. It's been very, it's been struggling for a long time. You've got a Japan that's basically in terminal decline, but still has a lot of capacity. You have the same thing in Korea. You know, all of these things add up to a lot of, of global capacity. Um, same thing with Brazil now. Where we're seeing that economy and Russia up. and Russia, so the bricks aren't the glow, the the golden uh, market not. that they were just a few years ago. Exactly, they're not at all, and so that that starts to get you worried because these units eventually wind up in the most profitable market, and that happens to be the United States and Canada. So I think it's just it's important to keep that in mind as as we look outward. You do, even the Japanese have said that they want to send more vehicles from Japan right now, absolutely. Given the yen, so. It's absolutely. Uh, it, you'll you'll dick up at pricing power uh, uh, pressure in this huge pricing pressure. Yeah. Um, have you seen that already though with the, with the cheap yen or any other currencies that have made it a little bit more difficult for a domestic built car to stand on its own two legs? Or so I, I again I I don't think we I've really picked winners or losers in that respect. Yeah. I think you know what we've seen is the industry overall uh, certainly has seen more more imports into this market. Um, I think we've seen this industry. You know, and historically at least struggle with that. Yeah. Um, you know, today U.S. facilities are still competitive. Uh, we still have a very strong consumer demand. Um, the question I always have is, are we going to outpace that? Right? Are we going to race and build a bunch of capacity before the customers actually show up? Are we? Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, is it? It's a concern. Okay. I, I don't. I think. I think the jury's still out. But I think if you looked at the global situation, that that's one of my concerns. Well, in North America, you really don't see any. I shouldn't say North America because Mexico's. They're, they're building like crazy Absolutely. down there in terms of yep. putting in capacity. But in the United States, you see the, the industry doing more to add maybe some overtime or break some bottlenecks, maybe add a little bit of capacity that way. But I don't see new plants going up at all. No, no, I, I don't disagree. I don't think in the U.S. and Canada you've seen a lot of new facilities. But I think the Mexican facilities that a lot of people had planned on, those units going to Brazil... Those units aren't probably going to be going to Brazil. They're going to have to come to some other market, and that market is the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so again, it's it's nothing that I'm personally worried about now. But I just think, you know, as the industry typically moves forward, it's always good to keep an eye on that and to remember how bad this industry was doing in 2004, five, six, and seven in terms of just being able to generate the cash to build a new product. And I don't think anybody wants to be back there. I was just in the used car market and ended up buying a new car, but. Uh it is incredible how robust used car prices are right now. We've seen some leveling off and even some deterioration there. I'm wondering what you think when, when more volume comes on off-leased vehicles and any other factors that may you know, grow the inventory. Is that another concern that, that at least would hit pricing? I mean, you've, you've had a, this, it seems like every month we're hearing about better and better and better pricing, which is encouraging, but at some point that train might at least slow down if, if more used car inventory comes online. No, I don't disagree. I think we are going to see some softness here in used car pricing. What we had was we had a huge benefit, of course, from the fact that from effectively 2009 to basically 24, well, 2013, we ran at under 16 million, you know, under kind of this natural demand level for, for new cars. So you just have this extremely constrained, almost sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, aberration in terms of the historical norm for used cars. And we've got a lot of leases coming off, like you've mentioned. We're going to have a lot more supply. So I think the used car prices are going to, I don't want to say fall, but I think they'll normalize to what we've seen 
historically. Uh, you see, I've been hearing that for the last mm -hmm. three years. Sure. Uh, and they, they still are very strong, very robust, even though uh, one of the factors uh, that really got the used car, uh, the used car market going in 2009, 2010 was the fact that a lot of people who would otherwise buy a new car because of their financial circumstances during the recession went to used. So that was a big boost for used. But I'm still waiting for this shoe to drop that everybody says is going to happen to used car prices, and I wholesale think prices. And I, I think you'll see this in 2016. I think we're starting to reach the end. Again, we're going to have a lot, of, a lot of these used cars come into the market, particularly off-lease. Uh, in particular, we're going to see a lot of these mid-size and small cars that were leased sort of in the higher oil price period, 12, 11, 13, 14. These are going to come in. A lot of these people are going to switch over to cross utilities. And so you're going to have this, this additional glut, right? You're going to have falling demand, and then you're going to have this increased capacity in those three, three areas. Um, and I think, again, you'll also see maybe a, in the used car market the same thing you've seen in the new car market, where small, mid-sized cars are going to struggle, and the pickup cross utility residual values and, and their, their sales prices are going to remain strong. So you're going to, you're going to see that light truck versus car split in the used, just as you're seeing in the new car market right now. Don't you think one of the factors that's kept used car st sales strong so far is the population of the United States continues to grow by over two million people every single year. And on top of that, you know, incomes have flatlined at the same time car prices have gone up. We're, we're pushing people out of the new car market into the used car market. I gotta believe that's one of the dynamics that's kept the pricing going. I think that certainly demand has been one of the strongest factors. I mean, we, we had the worst recession in the post-war period. People have really just now started coming back. I mean, 14 was the first year above 16 million since 2009. Hard to believe that it took us that long to get back above 16 million. You know, used car market finally creeping back above 40 million transactions. Again, it's taken almost six years to get here. That's a very, very long time. Very atypical for the U.S. in terms of a recovery. So the demand has been slower, but now that it is picking up, it is certainly there. And I think, yes, that will be a factor that, that maintains these used car prices and certainly demand. Again, for pickups, for light trucks, I think the car side is going to be significantly weaker. Uh, Americans like, like larger vehicles, continue to. That they do. Although the crossover phenomena is a global phenomenon, not, not just an not American. Just yeah, they picked it up. They've, they've picked it up from us. So Let's talk dealers. Uh, you know, what's your outlook for uh, the dealer body that you, know, you represent at the NADA? I've got to believe that the bankruptcies at Chrysler and General Motors, which wiped out thousands of dealers, have left fewer. And with sales up so much, they've got to be, this has got to be the best time they've uh, experienced in a long, long time. Yeah, I, I, I know that uh, revenues, of course, are up across the board. Um, but I think what's interesting is that really profitability has been flat. And we've been running at 2.2% uh, in terms of net margin now for the past three years. Um, while it is at a historically high level, you know, it, it's flat. No growth at all. Um, so there's a lot of that, Steve. there's a lot of active competition. I, I think, in particular, what you've seen is this development of effectively completely transparent pricing. Um, you know, anyone here can buy a car um, effectively anywhere in the country. You don't have to go to your local car dealer anymore to buy that new car. You, you can email and transact with anyone you want. Well, what and, about and that, about the, the true cars of the world? Are they affecting dealer profitability? Um, I, I think that the jury's still a little bit out. Um, I certainly would think that it's much more this phenomenon of being able to shop anywhere. Um, that's really heightened competition. Um, and that's not a bad thing, um, but it has changed the dynamic. And I think when you look at, you know, there's, there's still 8,000 know, dealer owners out there with you know, six, just over 16,800 outlets. 
you know, this, this takes a long time for this, this kind of sort of market and these, these retailers to respond to these changes. And so you're seeing that. You're what do you think about the true car auto nation divorce or whatever <laughs> you want to call it? Auto nation saying we're not going to use true car anymore. Right. Um, so I'm not, I, I'll, I'm not going to answer that directly in terms of true car, but I'll, I'll answer it in terms of these third parties that are coming in. Um, it's, it's interesting that the third parties are demanding extremely valuable f customer information from the dealers. And then on top of that, they want the dealers to pay them for that information. So the, hand over your information and then pay us because you handed over your information. I mean, that, that's, that's a lose-lose. That's, that's a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose kind of proposition. Well, they're looking at and it. We're, you're paying for this lead we just gave you, uh, well, I, which I, has been converted into a sales. Okay, so. that, and, that, and that's a transaction. But then to demand on top of that that you hand over all your customer information, that, that's another step. And I think if we looked at what this market is, I mean, data analytics are the future of every industry. Um, for a company to come in and say, you're going to pay us to generate leads, and then on top of that, you're going to add, give us all of this extra financial value by giving us all your customer information. I think that that's asking a little too much. So I, I do. does this require more investment on the dealer side to say, hey, we've got to have a front end? What AutoNation's doing is, I mean, obviously they're huge and they've got a ton of capital and they can build their own true car if they want. I mean, you're going to see sure. a more of a proliferation of of dealers, or I even heard today that Infinity's got their own sort of. We we're going to build a front site for our our our, our, our dealers so that they can just own the whole process, quicken it, make it faster, make it more transparent. And will the dealer be, that can do this be more empowered? And So I think, I think that was the answer right there, is that you have Infinity working on this. I think it, it requires more cooperation between the OEM and okay. the dealers. Um, there, there has been a gap, and I think these third parties have, have really come in. They've been opportunistic, and they've come into this gap where there's the dealers and the OEM, but there's kind of this, this fall through where customers get in, mm -hmm. into this market. Um, and they've been able to basically be, use this opportunity to develop this business um, and generate a lot of revenue and, and a lot of profitability. And I think the answer is for the OEMs and the dealers to work much more closely together on this. But here's it's a huge opportunity to do it. Here's the, the third party's point of distinction. They're a third party. They are somebody you go to other than the dealer himself or herself, mm -hmm. which some people have a, a I wouldn't call it an innate distrust, but they want a third party to kind of help them along. And they, Trucar and Edmonds and Kelly can <laughs> offer that service saying, right. you know, we are impartial versus a dealership who has a vested interest. So that's their advantage. And, and that's I why would people say, go I would, to them. I, I would say that they absolutely have the reputation of being impartial, that these third parties have that reputation. Um, but that's, you know, the, this is a retail market, and, le and let's not you know, fool ourselves and say that these companies are helping their customers out of the value and love they have for them. And They're there to extract value out of those customers. Do you feel customers. like the, 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 the deal is still done when you're sitting in the F&I office's manager, or manager's office anyway? I mean, at the end of the day, a third, I don't know this, but it feels like a third party can only bring you so far, mm -hmm. get you so armed. And at the end of the day, Steve's the, the F&I manager and I'm sitting here with my information, but he can, he's got levers and strings he can pull. Sure, I think I think the F and I part uh, is is still somewhat isolated. Um, you know, I I would be concerned um, that that is that is an area where these third parties haven't entered yet. I'm sure they're thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I, I can't imagine that they wouldn't have these thoughts. And just so anybody who's not quite following up, F and I is of course finance yes. and insurance, which is another part of the whole car selling basis. But let's go back to the the dealerships. We saw uh, Warren Buffett step in. 
uh, make a big purchase, the Van Tile Group. There was rumors that George Soros was looking for something. Now I'm hearing that whoever he was dealing with backed out. But I, I, I set that uh, as, a, as a prelude to asking you, what do you think is going to happen here? There, there seems to be a lot of potential for consolidation and especially for private equity to step up and start consolidating dealers. How do you see it, Stephen? Well, I, you, know, you hear these things, you know, Buffett comes in and buys it. George Soros gets up and says, okay, I'm going to buy it too. It's almost kind of like I've got a yacht and a Gulf Stream and I've got a mansion you know, in, in, in Monaco and all this other stuff. Now I need a dealership chain. It's kind of like the latest in thing for, for billionaires to buy. You can add it to their empire. I'm not as convinced that they're... Their new toy. Yeah, their new toy. <laughs> I, I'm not as convinced that, that they're really in it for the long term. I think Buffett clearly is, but some of these other guys, uh, it's Just not as clear. buy flip it. Buy it and flip it. Um, Which is the worst thing you can do, by you know, the way. Totally. Absolutely. I, I mean, but a lot of private um, equity comes in on that kind of a basis. And, I, you know, it's great. I mean, if, if you've got private equity money that wants to come in, is looking at, at entering this market, that, that's wonderful. I, I mean... And ADA will happily welcome them as members. Well, dealers, uh, with, dealers have doubt. a lot of value, and they always have. And I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, there was a dealer in Utah. He's now retired, Jerry Seiner. He started out, he was selling ads for the Wall Street Journal in Detroit. And he'd oh. go to uh, automakers and uh, auto executives, and he said so many of them were saying, you know, I'm trying to get my kid into a dealership. I, I'm trying to get into a dealership after, a, you know, I leave this job. And he said, Man, what is it about dealerships that everybody in the auto industry wants to go into? So that's how he became a dealer and a very successful one. Yeah. So there's a lot of value in those stores. No, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, it's, it's a huge business. It's $900 billion, almost $900 billion a year, you know, in, in retailing. Okay, it's the largest retail segment in the U.S. It is ripe for comp, for consolidation. You still, okay, we mentioned earlier, 8,000 individual owners across some 16,000 retail outlets. Um, so there is tremendous opportunity for cons consolidation. And you've got the regulatory burden that has grown tremendously on these guys. So all those back office operations, and there's huge economies of scales for a company to come in and consolidate multiple dealerships and pull them together, human resources, accounting, and so on. What do you think about individual dealerships joining forces? We had uh, a show that we shot uh, earlier in the year uh, where the sellers group uh, Two individual dealers separate said, hey, we're knocking our heads out to, uh, together in this marketplace. Why don't we join forces? We'll consolidate the back, the mm -hmm. back office, you know, advertising, finance, all that other stuff. But they didn't want to leave the business. They didn't right. want to sell out to somebody else. They love running their dealerships, but they recognized, hey, if we join forces, we keep running everything and we can save a bunch of money on the back office. Do you see more of that happening? I think that's a great hybrid model. I think we're going to see a lot of experimentation in this market as we move forward because there is this pressure, this regulatory pressure in the background and uh, you know this advertising pressure. And I think a lot of these, these stores are going to look at that kind of hybrid model or various other sorts of partnerships. And we'll see what shakes out. This is going to be a long process, and, and it, we'll see what happens. Is there a concern that these dealers, particularly these smaller dealers that don't have the, all this capital, are a bit exposed if net margins are about 2.2% in this environment uh, when you're moving this much volume, that if we do have some kind of dislocation or interest rates does have some kind of abnormal you know, impact on this industry, that if this is as good as it gets, I mean, is there any, any kind of concern that they haven't grown more in that area? Uh, you know, I, I think that's always a concern, um, you know, that, that we have seen flat margins and we're seeing, you know, wonder, wonderful sales levels, really, mm -hmm. you know, very strong in terms of service, uh, bay capacity utilization. And again, completely, completely flat margins in this industry. Um, you know, looking outward, I think we are going to see, again, str a stronger drive towards consolidation. As these margins start to come down, that just adds pressure 
uh, on the smaller guys to mm -hmm. consolidate or to sell out to a private equity firm that can you know, pool a bunch of these smaller dealerships and leverage those back office operations. Is that 2.2% margin on new car sales only? It's for the whole dealership, it's, it's net. Yeah, wow. net margin on the whole dealership has been flat. I, I think one important point to make, though, is that the dealer principals tend to pay themselves very, very well. And I'll bet <laughs> so, if you look at the AutoNation stores, the margins are probably so better are. because they're not paying their managers so we do, quite we, what the principal pays right, himself right, or herself. We, we do try to take that into account. And we do try to normalize for that, and as well as some of the other factors that that are in those those dealer financial statements. Um, so we're not allowed, you know, we take these and we, we calculate this. We're not talking about someone paying themselves a million dollars uh, and then, you know, it's, it's not in that margin. We, we do normalize it. Gotcha. Hey, let's go back to gasoline prices. And it's intriguing what you're saying that if we get a peace agreement with Iran and the sanctions come off and they can start pumping oil again all over the world or selling it all over the world, gasoline prices are going to come under even more pressure. I thought starting out this year that gas prices would turbocharge car sales. And sales are going great, but not as great as I thought. And based on what I read, but you're the economist, this is why I'm asking. <laughs> Americans, God bless them all, are paying down debt. They're getting yep. their financial house in order. How do you think that's going to play out? You know, a whole year of that, and now maybe they'll start to turn to buying more cars and other things? I think they have turned. I mean, we're talking about a year over 17 million. Uh, you know, let, let's go back three years even. Would you have thought we were, we're going to be back at 17 million? Yeah, but my point, Stephen, is if we went back to 1978, <laughs> now I know that's going back a bit in history, if the same percentage of the American population bought a new car this year as they did in 1978, it would be 22 million new vehicles. No, so you, you 22. Had, right, you had a great column on that. Right. that was yeah. really no, no, absolutely. Cycle. Yeah, you got you know 5.3 percent of the population uh, of the population buying a new car. Right. Yet over six percent in the 1970s. Yeah. So part of this is is just a lack of wage growth. So we've had car prices basically the last four years have consistently outpaced the growth in wages and incomes by over two percent. You know that that makes a difference. You look at the kind of of income levels we're seeing that are purchasing new cars well above $75,000 level for most new car purchases. So and in some ways, we've, we've kind of shifted this market. And, and really, even the person that's buying a, a, what we would call, consider you know, that, that family car is really almost a luxury car buyer. Mm -hmm. The transaction prices are over $33,000 now. You know, we're, we're moving upward and, and onward. And so that's changed. That's changed the fundamentals of this market. And that's where I get worried about all this capacity that, that's, that's in these foreign markets and it starts getting pushed onto this U.S. market. Cars well, are staying together longer, too, though. I mean, a used car in 1978. <laughs> <probably> <laughs> Six years, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. right. About until 1980 life. before right. that yeah. thing yeah. Uh, ended. A while ago, you had expressed some concern about even though job growth was happening, wage growth wasn't necessarily corresponding with that. Are you still concerned about that, that the, the, there are more jobs, but there are lesser paying jobs? No, I, I think that for, for pretty much anyone that's looking at this economy, the lack of wage growth is, is a long-run concern. You know, we really do need to see some sort of pickup. If we're going to sustain this economic growth cycle, we've got to see some sort of pickup in wages. Um, you know, this year we were forecasting a little over 2%. I think we actually might make it there in terms of wage growth. It'll be a very good year if that does, does come about. Um, and next year, again, I mean, really do need to see above 2% wage growth. And you're talking real, real inflation of course, included? Yeah, just, yeah, okay. uh, do you think we'll see that? Um, I think and from we where, have, if so. I think we will because we're starting to get to the point where there's actually some tightening in the labor market. We're seeing more and more in terms of job openings. Those job openings are going for longer. 
So we are starting to see some pressure on those wages and we are starting to see some growth. Um, it's been largely isolated to, unfortunately, the two coasts, um, but it's starting to, to, to work its way inward and we're starting to see that sa the same labor market dynamics in the Midwest and in the Northeast and in some other areas. And going, going back to what I was talking about earlier, do you see American households getting their, their financial act together where they don't have huge amounts of debt? And again, taking the savings from gasoline and, and getting it in order, is this just something that I'm reading? No, no, I think they have been. Um, if we really looked at sort of where, where spending has gone in this latest sort of a, a gasoline rebate that these consumers have gotten, uh, for lack of a, of, of a better term, um, it's gone into restaurants, right? I mean, we've seen we've seen restaurant sales go up. Um, we've seen a lot of these companies doing quite well. Some of these guys are even offering special dividends and share buybacks because they're doing well. Uh, I think there maybe consumers have been a little hesitant still to invest in some of these larger items. Well, you know, some uh, dealerships have restaurants, so they, they more might right. end I mean, up having those. Yeah, there's based on that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, um, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, so I think that, that we're starting to see that. Um, certainly the, the money has gone back into sort of more immediate uh, services rather than sort of these long-term white goods, or these durable goods that we've traditionally seen. Uh, part of that, I think, is because the housing has still lagged. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a way that consumers really do measure their wealth uh, has been in the housing market. So I think we're, we're still waiting for that to pick up. And once we see that, I think we're going to see more and more people come into this, this new vehicle market as well. Mm -hmm. I'm just in, very interested from the dealer perspective. I mean, are, would I be concerned, say, you know, I'm running the business for the long term, 10 years out, 15 years out. We hear a lot about Uber. We hear a lot about new methods of transportation, automation, things that could impact people's willingness to buy new cars, uh, you know, new, new methods. I mean, what, what would you tell dealers that are thinking, you know, further down the road than this current cycle? how they need to start you know, planning that business. And we need a 30-second answer. All right, I, the, the most important thing is customer service, right? I mean, this, is, this has got to be, we have to move from a sales to a very much a customer service-oriented business. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we, the customers, you know, the, the highest valued good, it is the highest value item that, that a dealer has, and that's what's most important. And then most dealers get that. Most of them do. Most get that. Yeah, and, and it's probably the simplest thing to do. Just yep. treat the customer right. That's right. But with that, we're going to have to end this. Stephen Zackley, thanks so much for coming in. Chief Economist with the National Auto Dealers Association. Steve Finley with Ward's Dealer Business. John Stoll with the Wall Street Journal. Thank you all, and I want to thank all of you for having tuned in.